Welcome to the Forward 40 Podcast, where we highlight the experiences of 40 women of color on the rise in the nonprofit and social enterprise sectors. This is an ode to our foremothers, a healing circle of our unique experiences, and a bridge of insight and wisdom across generations. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Forward 40. I am pleased to be with our guest who's in the guest chair today, Tabitha Mamira. She is a therapist, activist, motivational speaker, and consultant on sexual and gender-based violence. And she's also the founder of EDGA. So welcome, Tabitha. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I'm very excited to have you as well. Um, For our listeners, I just wanted to give you a heads up, you know, just for the nature of Tabitha's work, there are going to be things that we share and we explore with each other that may be um, sensitive and also um, may send triggers uh, for for some either based on your work or for uh, professional, personal um, experiences. So just wanted to set the stage for that um, before we dive in. And, you know, with that, you know, Tabitha, when we connected, um, you shared that the one thing that you were running from, you were running towards externally. So with that, can you tell us more about how your personal journey shows up in the work that you're doing today with Edja? Mm, yes. So with that, what I met was um, from the moment I heard about psychology when I was in 10th grade mm-hmm. in Niles, Michigan, my first year in the United States coming from Rwanda. Mm-hmm. It was something that resonated with me and I did not know why consciously anyway. Mm-hmm. And so from that day on, I knew I wanted to do clinical psychology so I can be part of um, this work that heals the mind. Mm-hmm. And so I have always known that's what I wanted to do. And anything and everything that had to do with trauma, especially mm-hmm. sexual trauma, I was attracted to. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was because it just appealed to me or um, it's my calling, whatever name I put to it. But it took over 20 some years for me to understand and realize for myself that it was my 11-year-old self within crying out for help. Mm. And I had been assaulted as an 11-year-old sexually and never thought about it again, never talked about it. And somehow I maybe thought, okay, maybe I dreamt it, maybe it didn't happen, whatever. I put it away so far. Mm. But yet everything and anything professional, I was pulled to do that work. And so, including how I chose my entertainment, my favorite show, we laughed about this, was yes. Law and Order SVU. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so I studied clinical psychology. I engaged in every research in the school about sexual trauma. I moved back after my master's and worked with women who had been raped in the genocide. Everything and anything that had the word trauma, mm. sexual violence, 
I was there mm-hmm. until 2015 that I realized I had to do, I had to be the work in order to do the work. Mm-hmm. That is very, very interesting. See, it's like you were, you were drawn um, to like studying the work, but there was a way that you had to show up in the work um, okay. as, as, as an active agent um, exactly. of change. Wow. Wow. I engaged um, intellectually and never really fully engaged from the heart. Yeah, and in practice. Really, mm-hmm. really interesting. Um, yeah, so similar to you, you, you know, we share that we both studied um, psychology. I, When I started, uh, it was with the intent that I was going to go the clinical psychology route, and then it evolved into social psychology uh, because at the time I was like, I don't believe I have enough patients to sit with patients. <laughs> and then, and then um, I remember in high school, actually, it was my first time taking a psychology class. Uh, and we looked at abnormal psychology and that really freaked me out. I was like, oh my goodness, all of, you know, these disorders and, you know, phobias and things like that. It's like, oh my, and, and, and that is just kind of like on the spectrum of, um, things that are associated with just like mental health and mental illness. I was like, mm. wow. So what kind of what kind of environment what IVN working working with clients working with patients um so that you know shifted me but I'm still in a space of the mind and you know helping people um how did you I guess navigate studying the psychology like the field of psychology when you were dealing with stuff on a personal level um and especially because you were drawn to the very thing that um, you had suppressed? And was there any other like resources or like people that you found to be helpful for you while you were in a sense, like studying yourself? Right. Well, I mean, I had done a great job or my brain had um, in burying it so far that Mm. that never occurred to me that I was doing this for me. Mm. I was so good at um, really focusing on the people in front of me. And Mm. I, honestly genuinely thought I I mean I was but I wasn't Uh, it was both right it doesn't have to be either or so I never at any time um thought of this as helping myself Mm. up until like I said 2015 so in that moment I saw um every client I came across I was fully present for them because it it was them who needed the help right not me Mm -hmm. I'm good Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and there's such you know of course our brain um have a way of keeping us protected yes that consciously I I couldn't even retrieve that um Mm. manifested in other ways but when I was showing up for my work it, it never crossed my mind that it was for me at all or that I was affected in any way Mm. It's it's interesting and almost crazy making to think. Wow, wow, that's really really interesting. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I mean, it still blows me away to this to this day how well um, mm-hmm. the brain protects you from your own thoughts and your own memories. Yes, yes. Wow. You have space in your life to really deal with it. Mm-hmm. So you. Um, that I, I, I couldn't handle it, but I could show up for others. So I did. 
Mm. And that kept going until I was ready internally to deal with my own stuff. Wow, wow, wow. And I like that, you know, like this point of you showing up for others, like you also, like when we previously spoke, you said, um, why do I get the luxury to wait when they are hurting, right? That um, there was this point where you were just like, I need to do something. So can you just speak more and elaborate more on the work that, um, like how Edja came to be um, and just the the, the journey in, in that work? Oh, yeah. So um, around 2015, I... Um, thinking of, again, how do I show up for others? <laughs> so my ex-husband had started a nonprofit. It had been in existence for over that maybe 11 years at that point um, or 10. And they supported orphans, grandmothers, fostering, all of it. Poverty, mm-hmm. HIV, AIDS, um, a lot of trauma had gone through this community. And here I come thinking, wow. And there was a holistic approach. I mean, they provide an education mm-hmm. and food and Clean water and clinics. It's incredible project, Nyaka, right? That's um, the umbrella we work under right now. Mm. And so I'm thinking, wow, uh, this is wonderful, but mental health is missing. Mm. So go in uh, for that. Let me go check it out and see what uh, how, what I can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that trip while I'm there, I'm ask we're asking around different questions on what kind of traumas these kids might face, mm-hmm. and the teacher very nonchalantly goes. Well, there's this nine-year-old in second grade. Um, she was raped yesterday. Mm. And he said it just like any anything else that happens every day mm. in my heart stuff. So we pull this little girl, I pull this little girl out of class and I'm doing a little therapy with her. And it turns out it wasn't even the first time. Yeah. And worse than that, she knew who the perpetrator was. He was still out and about. And he had offered her grandmother a goat. Oh, wow. As reparations, so to speak. Mm. So everything was back to normal for everybody else. But I knew it wasn't normal for this little girl. Yes. Um, and that took me back because I I did grow up in Uganda. Um, and I never knew this was, I mean, I knew rape and sexual violence happens Mm -hmm. but I didn't realize that you have to pay to go to the hospital you have to pay the police to arrest you so if you don't have resources you're out of luck wow but from the basics of the basics and so that's the moment I um I sat across this little girl and I'm telling her all the things that we need to do and how she can heal and all the steps she needs she might need to take and to, I mean, it, it's almost looking back, it was like I was looking in the mirror. Mm-hmm. That's the time that I had my aha moment. Mm. And it was that part of, wow, you have all the head knowledge to help this girl. So one, either you're a hypocrite or a coward that you don't want to do the hard work that you know it takes to do this. Mm. Or you don't think you deserve the healing that you've been offering others all this time. Mm. And it was just like, whoa, (laughs) okay now. (laughs) That, yes, and neither one of those um, options were okay for me to live with. And a week after that, while I'm still in this village, 
another girl comes forward who had been assaulted by the father since she was like four. Mm. He just keeps coming back home because he's a provider and mom just has no options but to sacrifice one child so the rest can survive. Wow. Okay. Right. In literally the same week, another grandmother hears about the case and comes forward with a five-year-old assaulted by the grandfather who was HIV positive. My goodness. And they couldn't raise the $5 in the 72 hours you need to get that pill mm. that could have the virus. So this five-year-old gets a life sentence because she couldn't afford $5. dollars mm. And that's when I was thinking, I, uh, uh-uh. what, how, where, when, you know, just your mind stops to see this pain. Yes. And I'm thinking of five dollars. That's a cup of Starbucks that I. That's my drug of choice usually mm-hmm. on a busy day. And mm-hmm. this could have saved this little girl's life. What? And that's when that um, still voice intuition holy spirit whatever yes. universe whatever name you put to it it was clear as day why do you get the luxury to wait helping when they're hurting right now because mm. wow. i thought i needed that phd i thought i needed to raise my kids first i thought i needed a million dollars on my account first whatever reason you put on your calling mm. and it was clear that there's no better time than now. And if not you, then who? That's how Ija was born. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that is so just, wow. Um, it's, I commend you for, one, being on the, like, just being a bridge for those little girls and, um, being strong enough to hear their stories and to be there to support them um, in a time where they didn't even know that they had someone to speak to, um, that it that what they had endured was not normal, and then to also um, navigate your own personal trauma to show up for them and many more in a greater way um that is that takes a lot of strength and um a lot of internal work and healing so thank you thank you thank you and did you like i guess in this um in your process towards healing who was helping you while you were helping yeah um that's the beauty of the journey, right? You mm. come in thinking you're helping someone and yes. then you know helping you. Yes. <laughs> it was those girls seeing their courage, seeing how brave mm. they're facing a culture that does not see this as an issue and they are ready and willing to do whatever it takes. Wow. Um I mean they just had to trust the process and trust somebody they didn't know. Mm. And so Seeing that kind of courage mm-hmm. really empowered me, if not for myself, for them. Mm. And, and interestingly, before Me Too went viral, a couple of years before that, um, after meeting the nine-year-old, our first fundraiser, I called it The Power of Me Too. Mm. It's the nine-year-old who empowered me for the first time 
to voice publicly the fact that I too am a survivor. Wow. Wow. I felt that it was imperative that I say that to her. Hmm. So she knows she's not alone. Yes. She doesn't have to feel the shame and the guilt that is attached that is so misplaced when it comes to this issue. Yes. And so she became my power, my um, encourager. She was my shero to get me on the journey to heal. Mm. And to get this work, I knew that for me to do it right, do it well and authentically, I had, I couldn't take anybody where I haven't been, right? Mm. And knowing that I too was dealing, I mean, not well, <laughs> but I had experienced what they were experiencing, um, that I had to jump in with both feet with them. Mm. Otherwise, I'm just going to be, again, the, the word hypocrite just kept showing up. So if I'm going to be um, authentic, I had to be vulnerable. I had to be real with my own pain as I show up for theirs. And so I went and got a therapist for the first time ever. Congratulations. You know? Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it is not easy one, as a woman of color. Exactly. Exactly. Out there. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and two, as a therapist and whose interest had been trauma for all those years, I felt like, what is she going to tell me that I don't already know, right? <laughs> I was like, okay, so she's going to throw EMDR on the table. I'm like, I can walk you through that. Are you going to tell me exposure therapy? I got this. But girl, as soon as I sat down, she said hello. And of course, it's very important to get somebody with whom you have trust. Yes. And um, you just... That's the weird thing about therapists, right? It's not just about the, the knowledge of what they're doing. Mm. There's got to be chemistry. And that's probably the only profession where you need chemistry because mm. every doctor can give you the same Tylenol mm. and you, you'll heal the same way, regardless of whether they're nice or not. Mm -hmm. If they give you a medication, it's going to work. But when it comes to therapists, and this is a very big misunderstanding, of, at least uh, people don't really think about it, given how it's been set up. Um, that they feel, okay, they're the people in charge, they're the experts, so I'll go with whatever. If mm. you don't feel chemistry, run. It's not going to work. And so luckily I did my my research. I shopped around until I found the right one. It was a That's black good. one. I was just, just going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it my goodness. to me. So. <laughs> There are plenty of white therapists who have done their cultural uh, competence work. And so I'm not saying they can't, but for me, it was important that it has to be a black woman. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> the minute she said hello, I just started bawling. <laughs> I did not know what came over me. That is but beautiful. Yes, I felt this kind of coming home, that sense of you can unburden yourself now yes. you can mm. well the first time in my life I had done everything I could to show up for others to um prove to the world that I'm able and capable and productive and smart or whatever whatever and just that moment I made a decision to come in and show up fully for myself mm. at 11 year old it 
all the chains broke loose and everything came out flooding in a way that I didn't even know they existed. Oh my goodness. That is so, so beautiful. And I just love how you said that, you know, you were completely unburdened, you know, being in her presence and you knew that you had arrived at that space that this is, this is where you can just lay all of that down and um, just be authentic. That is, that is so, so amazing. And um, yes, I, I've had, you know, therapy myself and I'm a proponent of therapy. Yes. <laughs> um, it is, you know, and it, it is interesting, you know, that we were both psychology majors and one would think like, oh, well, you know, you're the go-to. Well, the go-tos need someone to go to as well. <laughs> oh my goodness. And, um, you know, I've been reflecting uh, lately that especially, you know, during this time where, you know, a lot of people have been most mostly across the globe, you know, in quarantine and um, the the representation of mental health providers is very key. It's not just um, speaking to anyone. You want to be able to speak to someone that gets you um, and yeah. uh, that you feel comfortable. And like you said, Tabitha, that there's chemistry there uh, that you feel validated in your experience and that you know that you can mm-hmm. trust is going to um, advise you on the, on, on tools and, um, you know, kind of like renorming of your, you know, your healing uh, and, and, and your process. Uh, so, Thank you for sharing that. And also thank you for being bold and brave enough to go through that process for yourself. It's not easy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it's never done. Yes. Yes. That's very, very true. Um, so it was like, it was a couple of weeks ago. It was definitely um, in in the month of May where I was overly inundating myself with the latest with (laughs) Black Lives Matter. And I came across Mm -hmm. uh, this hashtag that said uh, justice for Uwa. And I was like, who's this? I I, I thought when I saw the hashtag that um, it was related to, unfortunately, um, another Black person who had lost their lives at the hands of police brutality and misconduct and it wasn't um it was actually uh for those that are unfamiliar 22 year old girl um who was sexually assaulted and murdered uh in Benin City uh she went to a church to go read and just for some solace and um those were her last moments uh here on this earth with us and um Then I would say as of a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a Black Lives Matter activist that was in Tallahassee, Florida, um, Toyin Salau, who was found dead after she had posted something on Twitter about being um, sexually violated. And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, one, wow, um, why is this happening? this has been happening for some time, but again, it's just like, what is going on? Um, here it is, this young, this young woman who 
went to go study in a quiet place. She went to be in a church and that's what happened. And then uh, the circumstances surrounding uh, the activist um, that was in Florida uh, still kind of, um, they're, they're putting that together. But in terms of like what her account was, um, like what she shared online on Twitter, um, it definitely took a toll on me that I had to, I had to reset. So I guess, um, in your work, I just wanted to know, like, how do we even get, begin to address this? Like beyond the the hashtags, I believe the hashtags are good because it brings awareness. Again, I was not familiar, um, with just the, uh, the conditions of even when it's happening, happening globally, just like, as you mentioned, that even a few dollars um, to get medication or to pay the police, like, I don't even know what the conditions were for, um, for Uwa, but um, just thinking about her and, and that moment and what the family was going through. And, you know, have we sensationalized this too much? Because both you and I admitted that we've watched Law and Order SVU. So, um, yeah, I guess I guess I just wanted your thoughts on like, where do we even begin or how do we begin to address this in a way that is um, it furthers action and change? And are we or have we over um, sensationalized, excuse me, this too much that it's kind of in our brains, it has become the norm. So we just think that it's OK. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I know that is such a sad story, and I, I didn't I didn't see that. Um, whew, that is a tough question. We're actually currently in conversation about how do we create a lasting movement that mm-hmm. it's not just like you said a hashtag or a moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, because one, this is the one issue that is global in nature. Mm. In that's similar from one end of the earth to the other, mm. if there is such a thing. Um, and it is as old as time from when humans were put here. Sexual violence has been around because it's based in patriarchy. And because it's been so ingrained in cultures and norms and customs and government it is harder it is part it's the thread right mm. you know that thread you keep pulling and the whole sweater is coming apart it anytime you pull a little farther it feels like the whole um the whole fabric of society is falling apart and most people would rather keep something that's not working together than mm. see it untangle mm. and that's been the hardest part about doing this work when it's somebody going to the Supreme Court who people come forward and have evidence, right? Mm-hmm. That this is, uh, so to answer this question, it has to start with how we are dismantling patriarchy. Because when you br- talk about this issue, it feels like you're attacking an mm-hmm. individual. And in most cases, in the, um, so somebody was saying this and it stuck with me. I can't remember who, I mean, everybody has said it now, but I remember where it began was that we all know one in three women are survivors of sexual violence. Mm. But most of us do not know that um, who the perpetrators were. 
So we know all the women who have been attacked, who have been assaulted, but we don't know who did it. Mm. And so if one in three of your friends has gone through this, it's likely that one in three of your friends is a perpetrator. Wow. Right? Um, or one in three people in your church, one in three um, classmates, mm-hmm. or one in five. Let's say they have multiple victims, right? But we all know who the survivors are. We don't know who the perpetrators are. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the first issues, is that we have done a good job at shaming the survivors mm-hmm. Putting the um, burden of proof on them mm. to prove this happened. Are you sure it's not you? That's the only crime ever where the survivor, the victim, has to prove it happened. Mm. No. Nope. Um, instead of the other way around. So when we start holding people accountable in all ways, and so instead of asking the survivor how it happened, where it happened, what part did they play, it will go directly the way we would. I mean, I know we've overused all these um, metaphors, analogies, and all of that of if somebody steals from you, nobody asks, what color was your purse? Maybe it's too nice. You shouldn't walk around with a Gucci purse. Nobody says that, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody says, oh, it's too bright. You're flashing it, so that you deserve that. We all write away who stole it, how do they look like, which way do they go. Mm -hmm. Every crime in history, in society, when a crime happens, everybody's looking for who the perpetrator was. Mm. But when it comes to rape, so it's a multifaceted uh, response, right? You ha- one is giving value to women, their bodies and agency. We're still talking about um, groups, mainly if I'm speaking in a U.S. context, where white men are making these laws about women's bodies mm. and women's health. Right? Mm-hmm. How are they going to make a law that protects us and, in essence, vilifies them, in, especially around sexual violence? We know mostly it's men who are the perpetrators, mm-hmm. not all of But so if I make a law where it holds them accountable, that's probably going to be half the room. How could they make such laws, right? <laughs> um, so representation of women in all those high places, having those conversations from age zero mm. um, I'm working with a group where we're trying to think about and she posed this question like for example climate change as a movement we have young people now leading it and everyone from a six-year-old a five-year-old can talk to you about climate change and a PhD can talk to you about climate change in different ways but mm. they all are getting to the same point right yes yes so you have a five-year-old who can say, I don't want to use a plastic straw. It's bad for the environment. I walk around with my twins, and they want to pick up every trash they see on the street, if there is, Aww. because they know it's bad for the environment. And that's the kind of um, understanding, knowledge, and openness we should have around this, where a five-year-old can talk to you about gender-based violence, about mm. her agency around her body and his body, in consent. Mm. So yeah, she said, the person I was talking said, we need to find our straw. Mm. How can we talk about it in a way that is ingrained in each and every conversation at home, in curriculums at school, in governments, yeah. in healthcare, 
because it affects each and every aspect of our lives in our spaces. I can go on and on about this. I don't even know if I'm, I'm still on topic anymore. No, that's, you know, it, it makes me, um, as you were mentioning that, like how kind of like from age zero on up to PhD, um, with, you know, with regards to climate change, I was even thinking back to like when I was in school and, you know, there was a D.A.R.E. program, like don't do drugs and, yeah. um, you know, like the anti-gun, you know, kind of like programming and also bullying. And it's mm. very, it's very interesting to me that um, when you're talking about gender-based violence and sexual violence that that is there are programs there are definitely programs and nonprofits that uh, are working in the space to make sure that young people uh, are familiar with consent but then also just like relationship um, best practices uh, they, they do exist and I'll say there's definitely, as, as you mentioned, a ways to go that mm-hmm. it's that it is and it feels like a movement that is so much ingrained into just how we move about, you know, the world that um, it's just common knowledge and um, increases better behavior uh, amongst everyone. Um, yeah, that's that's really really interesting um and then i like when you shared about uh the grandmother um who uh she didn't have the funds to purchase the medicine that her granddaughter needed um it it made me think about just like this intergenerational piece uh around gender-based violence and around um trauma whether that be sexual in nature or not like what have you found to be helpful in working across those generations that um can be useful in us breaking generational cycles of abuse and also what has helped you even as a mother um any lessons that you have put into practice with your own children hmm Mm-hmm. That has become my new obsession in <laughs> generational work. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad you asked. <laughs> You'll have to to stop me or be a piece of No, I will. I will. <laughs> no, because um, yeah. So that ended up being the topic on my TED talk, which I was I did not intend for it to be. But as I was thinking through, kind of my quest for healing and the work I was putting in and realized, wow, I I had just learned about my mother. Mm. My mom passed away in 2010. She was still young in her um, mid-40s. And she wasn't one to, to talk too much. She believed in action. She showed her love by what she did. Um so as a result, she never shared a lot about her life. Mm. And I realized as I was starting to dig in deeper into my own experiences that they kind of matched hers, mm. but I never knew. I um, Some uncles and aunties were starting to share bits and pieces of her life. 
And it'll occurred to me how um, I, I use the baton metaphor in a relay where somebody's running, they are holding a baton and they get to you and their turn ends, they hand it over and you take off. You don't have time to think or see what they handed you. You take off again and you do your part and you hand it over. Mm-hmm. The race continues and nobody ever takes the time to know what they were handed. Mm. And it felt that my mom had experienced a lot of trauma around that. Um, she was almost forced into early marriage and she she acted crazy <laughs> so she could escape and mm-hmm. it worked. Got married at 18 by choice, but still you're too young. Had five children. Wow. Probably wasn't educated. They pulled her out around seventh grade. Um, and there, I'm sure there's plenty that I do not know. But what was clear was that for each one, each generation, they're trying to do a little bit better than what they were handed. Yes, yes, But yes. they don't have all the resources, mm-hmm. right? And so she was taken out of school and she knew that if she had had an education, her life, her options would have been open. And mm. she knew that's what she wanted for her children. And so she hustled. She worked hard day and night, businesses, everything, so we could have an education. And for her, that was enough. Mm. She knew that at least if we are educated, we won't be forced into marriages. We won't have to settle for less we want you know whatever else but talking about that was not it felt like a luxury uh for her like talking about her pain there was sometimes even having that space is a privilege Hmm. you're surviving yeah there's time right and so seeing that i'm now able to see it clearly especially after you have kids I realized, and then working with these grandmothers and these kids, the biggest gift you can give the next generation is storytelling. Mm. Mm. It is opening up and speaking to and about your experience, your pain, your wisdom, everything that you gained so that they get the chance to pick and choose what they've been handed, what they can, what will serve them and what will not serve them. Mm -hmm. Because when we don't have the skills and resources to do that work, we just take whatever is given to us and run. Yes, yes. Until something life-changing brings us to our knees that we start now, start in our 30s, in our 40s, and we've been doing the same thing that don't serve us. And after we've done that for so long, we know we're passing it on uh, in our DNA. Now there's plenty of research that shows that. And then, you know, you're passing it on in the messaging, right? The parents who are telling their kids they're not good enough in one way or the other, or they are, you know, that's trauma manifesting in different ways. Mm -hmm. What you didn't get, if you've not healed that, um, and I, I called it that specifically trauma not transformed is trauma transferred. Mm. And so we keep passing on this baton of pain, of toxicity. And sometimes when it's been there long enough, it, ter- it starts to look like a family norm or culture. Yeah. Mm. It starts to look like that's just what we've always done. Um, 
and it, I think it was a TD Jax who was giving that story. I love storytelling. So I'm always using analogies. Obviously, yeah. I do too. <laughs> right? It just brings it home in a way that you know any nothing else can. Exactly. Like, he talks about a dog that um, was hit by a car, mm-hmm. and it was pregnant. She was pregnant, and luckily, all the puppies were fine. Mm. So she gives birth, but her um, hind legs were injured, so mm. she walked funny. Mm. And she gave birth to these healthy puppies. Nothing was wrong. And they came out, and they all started walking with their hind legs up the mm. same way their mom walked. And they finally took them to the vet. Mm-hmm. They said, I thought you told us the puppies were fine. Why are they walking like this? They were copying and mo- what mother was modeling. Mm. Their legs were perfectly okay. They could walk the way a dog walks. But what they see in their space is what they did mm. because they think that's the way it should be done. And so when somebody has never healed from their stuff, sometimes they stop somebody else from walking the right way because mm. Why do you get to walk right if I can't? Mm. Or the other person starts copying the things that no longer serve because they've not taken the time to analyze why do they walk the way they walk. Yes. Maybe they were hurt. That's why they can't say I love you. Maybe somebody did this to them and that's why. And then we internalize somebody else's pain as a reflection of who we are. Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, like I said, it's wow. a lot. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you just really, really, like, are you writing a book, Tabitha? Are you going to write a book? <laughs> because that was, I mean, wow, that, that, that was just it. That was it. And as you were talking, I was um, thinking about uh, my grandmother, who is my maternal grandmother, who's no longer here. Uh, she passed away in 2008. Uh less than a month after I graduated from from college and you know I've been looking at her pictures when she was younger and then as she started to you know get in her 20s and 30s and I just find myself when I'm looking at her pictures like grandma what was your story grandma what was your story Mm -hmm. um because there are parts of her story that she did share with me uh, and then there are others that I recall even my grandfather's uh, mentioning is too painful to talk about, right? That mm-hmm. when it's too painful to share, uh, because for a lot of people, they are going back to that place, like they're really feeling uh, what they felt in that moment of pain, uh, then they just internalize it, and then that hinders the stories being passed down that hinders the healing taking place. And the, um, it, as you mentioned, um, that's how the trauma is transferred because um, it's either the trauma has been normalized or it has been suppressed so far and so deeply um, that it's too painful to talk about um you don't know who to talk about and now now it's more normalized for us to speak to others about you know um pain or Mm -hmm. our experiences for generations past that was not 
That was not the thing. It was not an option. Mm -hmm. Um, You didn't want that label of being crazy or you didn't want that label of being um, the cause of whatever happened to you. So, yeah, yeah, thank you so much uh, for sharing that, because even though I don't have all of those stories about my grandmother, it is something that um, my like I myself want to be very intentional about sharing stories. You know, I created a platform so that we are sharing stories That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, because it's, it is very, very important. We need to, we need to know that we're not alone and um, we need to know how we also have overcome and are overcoming in spite of. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much, Tabitha. Thank you. So with that, like, how do you maintain a sense of peace uh, when you're so closely connected uh, to the work? And again, like that place of pain and trauma, like, how do you maintain a sense of peace in it? Hmm. (laughs) I think that is moment by moment, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Um, Intentionality around protecting my space and energy Mm. Um, and starting to really look at energy as a currency Mm. because when you're not intentional in this work you could end up being swallowed whole by it right yes and um right so something tangible um usually when it comes to money if you know you have ten dollars in the bank, you're not gonna promises. You're not gonna make promises of giving away forty dollars. Mm-hmm. So you're very intentional on where your each dollar is gonna go, so you don't overdraw. Yes, you don't have an option to overdraw in this case. But when it comes to our time and our energy, we don't think about it in tangible ways. And so, and and then when you have other things attached. So for me my sense of worth was coming from how much I can do Mm. before I was starting to, before I did the work. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to please everyone. I wanted to, to, to seem um, and present as super woman. There is no, there are no limits. There's nothing you're going to put on my plate that I can't handle. I want to, anyway, the story, I mean, the um, list goes on. But so as part of healing, as I grow my sense of worth and value to be internal and to know what where it's based, um, it helps me start to look at my, to become more, more and more intentional. And one, who do I let in my space? Mm. When I say yes, what am I saying yes to? And somebody, um, a, a sister of mine put it that way really well. Like, am I saying yes to the person or to the mission? Mm. Because sometimes you find yourself doing stuff you don't care about just to please people you don't even like. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I, before you would say, hey, do you want to do this? Like, sure. Everybody's sure. Yes. Yes. And then I'm miserable. Because at one, I'm late to everything. Because mm-hmm. I'm trying to do more than I can handle. Yeah. <laughs> and wherever I am, I'm not present. I'm still working on this. Um when then you're not present where you are and yeah. the day goes and the years and your life ends mm-hmm. and you look back what did I do with my life <laughs> <laughs> so you can do anything but you can't do everything that's right so I've become intentional for my ten dollars a day mm. if I spend my ten hours a day of work 
what are my values? Mm. If I say these are my values, do they align with how I spend the most evaluable thing that I have, which mm. is time? Mm. And am I intentional about it? Yes. So yes. I, my values are family, my purpose. And I spent one hour with my kids, but nine hours doing everything and anything for everybody else, I'm not aligned. Mm. And yes. then um, a big, big, big thing that I ask, and if you do nothing else in your work, you have to do this. Practice grace and self-compassion. Mm. Mm. So when that day ends, you reflect, and none of the things you did align with your values. You bless and you release that day, and you give yourself grace and compassion and the chance to start over. It. Oh, that's so beautiful. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been my mantra as I've been trying to get on this quest, bless and release, because then I'm going to ruminate and then beat myself up for not being good enough at this or doing too much or whatever, whatever. Oh my like, goodness. all right, well, that happens. Wow. Wow. Thank you. I mean, was Tabitha, was that your tea affirmation? Because that was, <laughs> that was so on point. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, I'm, I'm not going to steal the thunder um, from, from your tea affirmation, but wow. Like, yes, um, it is so important to uh, be centered in our values and like when you gave that analogy of, you know, currency with, with energy um, and using that dollar amount, I was thinking like, okay, yeah, where are you investing your time in? Yeah. Where are you investing your energy? Um, and also, what are you allowing to be deposited into your account? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. that's, now that's real. That's a word. <laughs> that is a word. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, so Tabitha, in addition to all of the beautiful wisdom that you have just graced us with, what would be your tea affirmation for our listeners to hold on to? I have been killing myself over this and nothing was coming to me and I didn't want to just Google or Pinterest the most deep, <laughs> profound affirmation I could find. So I, I followed your advice of just letting it come to you in the conversation. Yes. And what had come to me earlier, and I'm like, yeah, that doesn't sound like an affirmation. But the more we were talking about this, the more it was clearer that maybe that's that's what affirms me. So mm. if it works for somebody else, if it doesn't, um, what kept coming back to me is like, I am healing, mm. so nobody else has to. Oh, that. Oh, I love that. Oh my goodness. Wow. My reminder for continuing my healing quest is everything I don't heal, I manifest and hurt somebody else with. Mm. Wow. And especially my children, yes. all those closest to me. So I have, we all have to do our healing. So nobody else has to as a victim of our own. Yes. Wow. Wow. I, I am healing. So no one, nobody else has to. That is amazing 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 um tabitha how do people stay connected to you how do we support the work that you're doing with edja give us give it give us the lowdown okay <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so 
as a result of this work, as I've been on this quest, I decided to start a way of evolving others come along because this we all have to do this work together Mm -hmm. um so i started a youtube live show every thursday at 7 p.m oh baton talk thursday the baton talk with tabitha is what it's called so it's on youtube.com forward slash tabitha mamira my first and last name t-a-b-i-t-h-a-m-p-a-m-i-r-a um and then all my social media, um, uh, Tabitha Mamira. So Instagram, mm-hmm. Twitter, Facebook, same name. You find me all public. I'm open book. Um, and then to support our work in Uganda, helping these wonderful, wonderful communities. Um, we, we do holistic work, like I mentioned, and now it is under the same umbrella of Nyaka, N-Y-A-K-A. Dot com, I mean, that org. So nyaka.org. Um, you can find the EJA program under there. You can find whatever speaks to you, education, grandmothers, um, medical, you name it. We do it all so because everybody needs is a whole being. So why do one thing? Yes. So we would... We're open for um, anybody who wants to come along, volunteer, visit when we can travel again. Um, however way the universe and God is calling your heart to serve, we would be more than happy to come alongside you in that journey. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my goodness. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for, you know, um, truly getting us to a place of peace. Like, I... I I admit that, you know, this topic is not an easy (laughs) and the work that you're doing is not easy. And I just feel so grateful um, and just restored by just speaking with you. So thank you uh, for being one of our 40. I am honored. And you asked some difficult questions. (laughs) I'd be messed up with that question. (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh. Giving me a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Tabitha. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. You as well. Oh, it's a pleasure. Until we connect again, sip, sis, sila, share, and continue to serve.